all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We're going to be taking your calls during the hour concerning any kind of health issues you might have or topics that you want to address today. You can call us at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can also send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. Hope everybody's having a great Wednesday morning and uh, are doing okay out there. A little bit of uh, rain on the way in this morning. Looks like it's going to be sort of uh, um, a little bit uh, all day today, maybe some tonight uh, in the central part of the state. Uh, But uh, I think that's from uh, the Tropical Depression Beta. We've run out of names now, uh, so we're uh, into the Greek alphabet there. Uh, so stay safe if you're in places that were damaged in uh, southern Mississippi, Louisiana, um, and uh, Alabama. want to make sure that you stay safe if there's any kind of increased rainfall. We need a break from all that, uh, obviously, to try to rebuild and uh, recover from some of the damage that's been done in the last couple of weeks. If you are a new caller, I want to encourage you to, or if you're a, a regular caller or in listener, Uh, I'd encourage you to call earlier in the hour. So we always uh, regret having to cut uh, our time off at the end of the hour uh, as we run up against the clock. Uh, We want to give everybody a chance to to ask their questions or give comments, and we're not always able to do that if you call in later in the hour. So the number again is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-MPB-RING. 672-7464. If you are emailing, we do look at those from time to time and try to answer those questions uh, as soon as we can, both individually and a lot of times we'll share those on the air uh, with our other listening audience. They're really good topics. That's what makes this show really great is that you, our listeners, uh, determine the content of it. So certainly we want to keep you updated <clears throat> with anything that's in the news, but um, there's certainly a lot of things out there that are already going on that you can share with people. So call in early. I give you permission to do that right now. We give our regular prize to our first caller, uh, which is kudos. Um, so it's the same thing that all of us, uh, well, that I get paid. So um, <laughs> we want to encourage you to call in today to Southern Remedy. Uh, lots of things out there going on. Of course, everybody's looking at where we are with vaccine development. We're still uh, in pushing forward with a, a few vaccinate, uh, vaccines uh, are sort of in the front runners, um, uh, two in particular that are in phase three trials. So phase three is really uh, where you test the vaccine in a large population for two main reasons. There's a lot of other reasons why you want to do that. One is how good is it going to work? So we call that efficacy um, and how efficient is, is it in uh, somebody developing immunity? 
And the arbitrary cutoff for that for most vaccines is at least 50% effective, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're talking about something that has the potential to uh, cause a lot of uh, a lot of damage, a lot of uh, morbidity, a lot of problems in people, certainly that's that's something that we want to decrease, even if you can only decrease it 50%. Another thing to keep in mind is not only uh, is one of the targets that somebody would not develop. Uh, something like COVID with the vaccination after getting vaccinated, that that would be protective against getting it. If you do develop it, uh, similar to the flu, uh, it you know you can anticipate that you might not have as severe a case of it. So that's the other thing that we're looking at. So that's efficacy. Uh, how well is it going to work in producing immunity? We know that these vaccines can produce antibodies and an antibody response to the virus. But you really have to test that in the general population to see how well is that going to work uh, when people become exposed. And that takes a lot of people to be enrolled in those studies and a lot of time. And the second aspect of it in those phase three trials is safety. So even though a lot of the original uh, phase one and phase two uh, studies have looked at that, at the safety issues of vaccines, really phase three and then beyond that is when you really see just how safe those can be in the general population. And, you know, vaccines can cause a number of local reactions that aren't that serious. Certainly pain is one of them. Uh, redness at the site, uh, particularly with some of these uh, viral vaccines like coronavirus and influenza, you can get uh, some of the symptoms of it. That's really, it doesn't mean that you got it. All these vaccinations are killed vaccines, so you can't really develop flu or coronavirus from them. Uh, but they can uh, evoke a immune response uh, to um, an immune response uh, that causes some symptoms. So you can have some muscle aches, maybe low-grade fever, and that just means your body's really recognizing that as something that's foreign and that it's uh, making an immune response. So just an overview on uh, vaccination development, and uh, certainly we are not near that. I know a lot of people were saying the end of October. That's probably not realistic. It wouldn't be safe to have a vaccination pushed through that fast. Again, we wouldn't know completely if it's going to work or if it's, um, if it's gonna be totally safe. So we need a little bit more time. These things do take time. Even if we get this by the end of the year, that would be a record of uh, vaccination uh, development. So uh, as far as time period. Uh, the number to call if you have a question is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Sally and Jackson. Good morning, Sally. Good morning, Dr. Jamie. I have a question about a friend of mine who lives on the coast was diagnosed with COVID the 26th of August. And uh -huh. uh, she's continued to isolate herself. She was retested this past week and still remains positive. But the physicians there told her that she could go off of quarantine and that she would probably stay positive for at least three months, but she was not contagious. Uh, I was wondering about, I'm going to be in that area, about visiting her, uh, wearing a mask and everything, but I, did, I wanted to make sure it was safe. Yeah, Sally, that's correct. So uh, retesting is not, um, is not normally something that we do, particularly if somebody has had it and they're not in the hospital. 
Um, so there are some different criteria in, in other ways of where you would retest and look at some different things. But depending on the test, it can be positive, as you said, for up to three months afterwards. And you really shouldn't even fool around with getting a retest. If you've had COVID and it's been diagnosed, you had the symptoms, after that quarantine period, which is now 10 days from when you first developed those symptoms or you were tested, and at the end of that 10-day period, you have to be afebrile without taking something like Tylenol or ibuprofen, uh, you know, a, a type of fever medication, um, and you, your symptoms need to be getting better. Not all the way completely better, but they need to be on the mend. Uh, at the end of that 10-day period, they can be around other people. And um, at least for, you know, we know that antibody responses, it tends to follow the severity of illness. So those who are more ill have a more, much more robust antibody response that, that may protect them for a, at least three months. Uh, there is some data to suggest that starts to go down after two months with a natural infection. So if they're coming off of, of quarantine, uh, you know, that it's certainly uh, in, and they've had COVID like that, don't need to get tested. You're probably fine to be around them. You know, I, I err on the side of, of masks. There's not really a, that much of a chance of you giving them COVID again. You can get reinfected with it again, but it's Typically, from what we know, what little we know right now, that's usually five, six months later um, in the cases that we've seen. But, um, yeah, I think you're pretty safe to, to go ahead and, and visit. The positivity of the test, it doesn't, it doesn't correlate with infectiousness. So, in other words, you can test positive after having it, but after that 10-day period, there shouldn't be, and your symptoms getting better, there shouldn't be much, if any, chance of that of them giving that to somebody. Okay, thank you very much. I All right. All right, Sally, stay safe. Thank you for your question. Let's uh, talk to Alan in Saraland, Alabama. I think I pronounced that right. Are you there, Alan? Yes, yes, sir, I am. And uh, I, I hope that you can bear with me for just about one more minute. There's a lot of noise going on. There we go. I think it cleared up, Alan. Yes, sir. I'm getting there. Uh, hang on. A little bit more. I'm trying. Uh, it sounds like somebody's backing up. Yes, sir. That that that's me, and uh, I'm doing two things. One. But now this is my question. Uh, well, I've got this person that is what they call. I can't call the name, but they they seem to be slightly what they call uh, manic. You know what I mean? Manic. They, uh -huh. They're real quick-witted, and if you talk with them, they, they kind of talk back real fast and sarcastic, and, and, and everything kind of uh, kind of alienate everybody that they work with. You see what I'm saying? And yeah. Nobody wants yeah. to be up around them. And, and, and they seem to be quite fine with it. <sighs> However, everyone who's around them is... Um, uncomfortable sure and, and and so that person doesn't seem to recognize that anything's wrong with them but everybody else that's around them does nobody wants to work with them yeah so what can be done to help that person yeah Alan, that's a difficult it, go ahead it, it 
you know, as uh, kind of, kind of a touchy subject because you, you don't want to do any say anything to offend anyone. Right. Right. But at the same time, you know, uh, all the other people can't all be wrong. You know, seem like it yeah, might be something yeah, to do to help that person out. Sure. Yeah. So it's that that is a tricky situation. Um, generally speaking, so there's there's you mentioned the word manic, and uh, so mania is a symptom, right? So it's not necessarily a diagnosis. You can certainly have um, manic. Uh, manic symptoms as part of bipolar disorder. So uh, bipolar disorder can have a couple of different variants. So there's sort of a mixed variant where they can be depressed, clinically depressed for a period of time, and then uh, also have uh, elements of mania. Mania tends to be a lot of energy. They just go, 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 go. They may have very little sleep. Uh, they may override conversations in people, and it can cause a lot of interpersonal uh, negative interpersonal reactions. Um, the other two categories are where you just have a pure mania and then a major depression. But beyond that, you can have t a lot of other conditions. Uh, there are some milder conditions uh, or personality disorders uh, that uh, patients can have that you really need a, a tight diagnosis on that by a professional in order to know what to do. I think from your perspective, from the people that are working with this person, it really depends upon your relationship with them. So if you have a close friendship with them or you know somebody that does, I think some questions to ask, because generally a lot of times the person themselves who has these symptoms, they won't know it. Like you mentioned, like they are just running along just fine and uh, they can't really see the impact of that because of the way the mind is, is affected. So uh, a, a close friend or people that a person trusts can give some good feedback. If it's impacting their work, um, that can be, you know, sort of brought up and say, you know, have you ever considered um, any of the behaviors that you have are affecting other people uh, in negatively? And uh, have you ever, you know, have you ever thought about that? It also helps if somebody else has had that. Uh, certainly, that's probably the best thing. If somebody came up and said, you know, I've had this um, uh, and I was treated, I was diagnosed appropriately and treated. It is treatable, uh, particularly if you're talking about uh, bipolar disorder. But it is it's hard because a lot of times patients will not get the treatment that they need. And particularly if they don't have the social support in their family or friends, uh, it's really hard. So moving them, nudging them toward a uh, professional a psychiatrist who can give them an accurate diagnosis is probably the first thing. If they're already, you know, if they're already uh, established with a physician or uh, th then they might could, you know, they might could bring it up with them. But really, it's going to depend on that person trusting somebody else to give them that feedback. So it's it can be tough. You know, you hear about interventions in families and uh, around the workplace sometimes. They don't work as well, in my experience, with a situation like this, because if everybody confronts the person, they don't have the, the proper judgment a lot of times to really accept those that feedback about their behavior. And I think it's always important to not to think about statements that you make and not make the ones that really denote a judgment in character or about the person themselves. We all have behaviors 
that uh, are negative in their, their perception and their reception. In other words, if I have a lot to say in a conversation and I run all over somebody else and interrupt them or I do it on the air for, for people and I don't allow them to speak, then, um, you know, those are negative behaviors that I can change. When they become pervasive, though, and uncontrollable to a certain extent, you know, it, with a lot of these conditions, they really can't control them themselves. They can modulate it a little bit. That's when you need help, and there's a lot of medications that can help. Uh, but really, first of all, you need that um, you need that diagnosis first, and that needs to be by a professional. Everybody, you know, seems to think they're professionals about things. Uh, I, you know, in this case, I, there are very strict criteria with making these, so a physician can do that. Um, but even, even then, a lot of times if I'm confused about it, it doesn't really fit. I will very quickly, uh, call my psychiatry buddies and say, Hey, I need some help with the patient. Can y'all see them? So that, that would be my suggestion. It's not easy. Those are, those are difficult waters to navigate, Alan, but, uh, I would just try to come together in support of this person by giving them some really good feedback in some creative ways. All right, creative Alan, would be the key. Exactly. Would be the key adjective in that conversation. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. appreciate you trying. Bye. All right. All right, Alan. Good luck to you. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things listen to Fix It 101 podcast everywhere. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on the Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions about any kind of health care issues that you might have. The number to call this morning is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Let's go to Rao, and I think that was Vicksburg. Yes, sir. Welcome uh, to the program. That. What's your question uh, this morning? Um, uh, first of all, thank you for taking my call, and also I appreciate your uh, program very much. I have one question, which is about seasonal flu shots for senior citizens. Uh, I recently took a seasonal flu shot at my pharmacy, and subsequently I mentioned this to my doctor's office because they, you know, my primary care physician's office because they wanted to know, you know, if I got one, and. Uh, uh, but then they asked me if I got the high dose shot. So when I asked my pharmacy what kind of a shot I got, and they told me I got the Fluad Quad, uh, which apparently, as I understand, it has been introduced only this year. And there is also another one called, and it's suitable for uh, seniors, 
but I found that there is also you know, uh, a traditional flu zone high or something like that, which is right. a high dose uh, flu shot given to seniors. So I was wondering, you know, what is the difference between these two as far as seniors are concerned and their effectiveness? Yeah, if you got the Fluad quadrivalent or Fluad quad, it may have actually have been the, the higher dose. Um, it is? Okay. So, so the, the whole reason for this is we know that the immune system, over time, it wanes. It gets, it, you know, like the rest of the things in the body, a lot of things just don't work as well yeah. the longer you live. Same thing with the immune system. So it, it can work. So it's not like it's totally not working. But basically, when you receive the flu vaccine, it's uh, little uh, pieces of it on the outside of the of the flu virus that your body can your body's immune system can recognize and start to make antibodies that would cover you for the season. You know, flu changes from year to year. We have two types. We have subtype A and B. Both of those are included in the vaccinations every year, and they look at patterns uh, regionally and worldwide uh, from what was the previous year, and they make very good scientific guesses and predictions about how to put that vaccine together. Um, now, in, in those 65 years of age and older, uh, there is a, a little bit more of that in the vaccination. So it is a little bit more that you're delivering because you're giving the body a little bit more of it so that it can, the immune system can respond to that appropriately. So that's why it's, it's recommended uh, for everybody who, um, who you know is getting the flu vaccine of 65 and over that they at least have the option of getting that. Now, if you got the regular uh, flu vaccine, if somebody's out there and they're worried about it now, and like, well, do I need to get another one? Uh, getting it, uh, any of them, is better than none. Uh, and I wouldn't advocate you know getting another one. What I've been telling my patients, if they did that, uh, I think. Uh, pharmacies are great, honestly. I mean, I tell my patients, you know, we typically, in our clinics, uh, we have flu vaccination, uh, but depending upon the demand, some weeks we may run out towards the end of the week, or we may have a few days where we don't have it. I just tell them, look, I don't care where you get it. Uh, certainly, if you're there in the office, that's convenient. Uh, but I think most physicians are like this, that we say, you know, if you want to go by your pharmacy and get that, that's fine. So if you got it and it wasn't the high dose and you're 65 or over, that's okay. I would not recommend getting another one. Um, you're going to get at least some immune response to that. Uh, and for a lot of people, that should be fine. It's just, you know, and, and we can't really predict down to the individual. These are, these are population strategies to decrease the flu. So, uh, you know, we're looking at everybody 65 and older. Some people 65 and older may have perfectly fine immune systems when compared to a 20-year-old. It's just that the population as a whole, uh, the immune system goes down over time. So uh, if you get it, that's great. I would encourage everybody to get it this year um, just because of having it overlap in season with COVID and what we're seeing, uh, you know, at, at, for a number of reasons. It keeps people out of the hospital with both of those diseases. Um, you can have flu and uh, COVID at the same time. We saw that in the spring. Um, certainly mask and social distancing should help. We also saw that during the spring with flu to decrease the, um, the number of cases of people developing it. 
but it's a great idea to go ahead and get that flu vaccine because the less people we have with flu, the better we're going to be able to target COVID. So hope that answers your question. What Rao, what, uh, if I may ask, doctor, uh, if I may ask, what is your opinion about this flu at quad uh, vaccine? Is it a high dose uh, compared with flu zone high? Uh, yeah, so the, that that should be the flu flu ad quadrivalent should be the higher dose. So again, that's the one or one of the ones. There's a there's several uh, that have the higher dose, but that that should be fine. Uh, the the other ones, you know, if you're not in that age range and you don't need you know a higher dose, certainly those should be okay. Yeah, yeah. So they didn't know, in other words, for future, just for my future reference and others. Uh, in terms of flu zone high versus flu at quad, there is there is really not that much difference as far as seniors are concerned. Yeah, if it's the higher dose, it really doesn't make yes. a difference who made it. You know, it should be fine. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. i uh, got plenty of time for your calls. I uh, had some great ones so far. The number to call is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Let's go to Joseph from South Haven. Good morning, Joseph. Uh, good morning. Yeah, Thanks I for calling. Uh, I am 83 years old. I'm a retired person, and uh, I've had some heart trouble for the last five or six years. I had some uh, different problems, which had me hospitalized for a few days for diagnostic things. And uh, during that time, uh, I, I was given medication. Everything seems fine. I've been seeing my cardiologist every six months. Well, this last uh, examination I had, they did a uh, nuclear stress test. And among the uh, problems, they said they called me back and said that I have some matter or in, in the, one of the chambers of my heart. They said it was, uh, I didn't know what it was, so I had, I'm about to go to an MRI and see what it is. But they, uh, when she called me, 
she, I asked her what it was, and she said it could be a clot or a tissue. Yeah, so, so Joseph, that's the most common thing. So uh, with conditions like heart failure where your heart or, or other heart problems where your heart is not pumping as effectively, uh, you know, it's pumping that blood in and through the heart and then out to both the lungs and the body. If that blood pools there, you know, blood, anytime it stops moving, it starts clotting. Uh, that's the reason for, you know, in our veins and our lower extremities, if you're on a long plane ride, you're not moving around, or if you're in a car that can put you at an increased risk of, of clotting. The same kind of thing can happen in the heart. So if you don't have adequate blood flow through there, uh, sometimes you can develop a clot and that clot can do two things. It can stay within the heart itself. So in one of the four chambers of the heart or it can be ejected either to the lungs or to somewhere in the rest of the body, uh, which would be bad. So generally speaking, if you have a clot and it breaks loose or parts of it break loose, they can go downstream and cause blockages like in your brain, in your uh, heart arteries itself or somewhere else in the body. So getting an accurate diagnosis of uh, you know, some of the imaging techniques that they have, and MRI is really good at doing that too, and they can see it in real time to try to see if it's attached to the heart wall in any place. Um, they can do a lot now endovascularly. In, in, in other words, the same kind of techniques that they use to do a heart catheterization, they can go in and they have some special tools where they can sort of uh, basket or, or grab that clot and try to retrieve that before it starts to break off. Another thing, if it is a clot, uh, they can do anticoagulation for a number of times. If it's a large clot, it's probably not going to completely go away, but um, so a lot of times those can dissolve with time. Now, a mass, on the other hand, is something that grows uh, from the wall of the heart itself. And there are some, some tumors, uh, they're usually slow growing, Those sometimes they can, they can cause uh, some, uh, some growths that are in there, myxomas uh, are, are one type of that. But basically that's, that's something that can be attached to the heart wall itself. And uh, the imaging most of the time can, uh, it's gotten so good that most of the time it can make the diagnosis um, to, to decide what to do. And again, those can be, some of those can be excised. They can cut those out uh, of the heart wall, but they can sometimes cause obstructions uh, to some of the blood flow, depending on where they are coming in and out of the chambers of the heart. But that's, that's the two basic categories um, that you can, uh, that you can have with things in your heart. So following your, your cardiologist advice is good. Um, Joseph, you certainly want to do that and uh, get those other tests so they can very quickly know what's going on and see if they can do something about it. Now, I've been waiting over two weeks for this MRI, which is next week. Uh, I, I'm just very concerned if it moves, if it's a blood clot, if it starts to move, or uh, I'm somewhat concerned just waiting around. I, Joseph, are you on blood thinners right now? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And there's not, I mean, because the heart is continually beating, there's not much you can do 
Uh, now I wouldn't, you know, go out and run around the house or things like that. I mean, I think I would sort of take it easy until they could get to that, to that scan. Certainly the blood thinners should help reduce your risk of that one, one or a piece of that coming off if it is a clot. I'm wondering if I should seek some more specialized, uh, things rather than this local cardiologist. I've been thinking of going to Vanderbilt or some uh, medical school that has a, uh, you know, a very good reputation. Yeah, once they get the MRI, that probably is what you might want to do, um, particularly if it's somebody who's not an interventional cardiologist. So an interventional cardiologist has some additional training uh, to do things like go in and, and basket a clot or, uh, you know, if it's, if it's a growth or a tumor or something. Uh, but yeah, definitely I would do that. Not every cardiologist has those skill sets to do that. A lot of them are, are diagnostic cardiologists so that they, uh, you know, they certainly can treat things like heart failure or uh, the uh, routine uh, cardiology or cardiac abnormalities. Uh, but a lot of them, particularly if it involves doing things in the heart, you really need some specialized training. And they have additional training beyond uh, sort of the basic cardiology training to learn those skills. So I, I agree with you. If it were me or my family, once I got the diagnosis based on the MRI, that's, that's the point where you may want to consider uh, somebody who's more specialized. Are there usually long waiting periods at a place like the Cleveland Clinic or uh, Vanderbilt? You know, I can't speak for everybody. Certainly here, it's fairly quick. And, you know, like in Jackson with our interventional cardiologist, uh, they don't have to be associated with a, uh, you know, depending on what's going on for, for your, your problems, uh, there are a lot in private practice. They're not all at academic medical centers, but most of the time you can get in pretty quick. When you start talking about problems with the heart, they have, you know, uh, pretty quick access for getting in after you have that diagnosis. And your current cardiologist can help make that pretty quick. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. All right, Joseph. Thank you for listening and good luck to you. I'm hoping that, uh, that MRI turns out well. Let's go to Patty, I believe, in Clinton. Hello. Good morning. Good morning, Patty. Hi. Um, I have a question about the flu shot. Um, I have, I'm in my 60s. I've been getting the flu shot for the past 10 years or so. And I was speaking with an acquaintance yesterday, and she said that she's not getting it this year. She's about my age. And she said... Um, because a friend of hers, daughter, who was in her 40s, um, had a bad reaction and suffered from blindness and partial paralysis and uh, just is, and is still uh, getting over some of the um, side effects that she suffered from getting the flu shot last year. And I, I question that because... I've never heard anything, you know, negative about just getting the flu shot, um, you know, other than maybe suffering a little bit of fever or, you know. Right. So yeah. is, is that possible? I'm, 
Yeah, it, it is possible. Um, certainly there are very, very rare. We're talking about less than one in hundreds of thousands of individuals who would get a flu vaccine may have a, uh, a, a reaction to it. Um, and those can be a lot of different things. They can be things from uh, that are transient things that sort of come and go, or it can be things that persist. Um, you know, certainly if there's an allergy to different components of the vaccine, a lot of people just can't take it. Um, but you'll find that with anything, you know, it's, a, it's exactly the same kind of thing in medicine, anything that you get, even if you're taking over the counter medications, um, or herbal medications, you can have a serious allergic reaction or adverse reaction from those kinds of things. So Although it is, you know, we talked a little bit about vaccine development, although those are very, very rare in vaccines, you can have that. Now, should point out that if you look at everybody who develops the flu every year, there's actually more cases with the flu of having adverse reactions such as immunologic responses, partial paralysis, um, even death. There's a lot more risk of getting that from getting the flu than it is the vaccination of the flu. So most people will not have any problems with the flu vaccine. Uh, some people every year, you know, they have, they feel like they have the flu. Again, it's just your immune system saying, yep, I recognize that. I'm gonna make some antibodies and turn on the immune system. Um, certainly redness at the spot, maybe a little bit of low grade fever. Um, so it's not totally out of the, out of the realm of, of that that may be possible. The other possibility is that something else was going on at the same time. You got the flu vaccine and it gets attributed to it, which that gets counted. There's actually a reporting mechanism. Every time somebody has a potential um, side effect, that has to be reported. And we do that in our clinic. If anybody has something, if it's beyond a regional reaction, if it's a systemic reaction to something, we report that it gets investigated and put it into a database so that we know if anything pops up. We had a vaccine for kids years ago against rotavirus. We have a different one now, but back then it caused a lot, some problems, uh, particularly with lymph nodes in the gut. And um, that vaccine was pulled off the market because of that. And it was because of the monitoring system of that. So, uh, you know, it's possible that this was attributed to the vaccine, but certainly, I, you know, I, I've seen that maybe once or twice uh, occur. But again, I've seen so many more people that have had more severe reactions uh, to, uh, to getting the flu who were perfectly healthy. And you can't, that's the thing about it, you can't really predict that very well. So I'm a big advocate for getting the flu vaccine. I already got mine September 1st. Uh, so I, my, mine's in the bag for this year. Uh, so I'm, I'm with you, Patty. I would, I would even say to them, you know, that's unfortunate that they had that happen to them. But the chances of that happening to anybody, even within the same family, are astronomically low. So there's much more chance of having problems getting the flu. Great. Thank you. I'm still going to get it. And, uh, you know, I'm waiting till October. I heard that was the best time to, to get your flu shots so yeah we're you know we're saying going ahead and get it now um but yeah certainly october would be about as long as i would wait so that sounds like a perfect uh, plan for you <music>
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. If you're a parent on the go, but still want to stay informed about your children's education, subscribe to Mississippi Education Connections podcast and listen on the go anytime, anywhere on your favorite podcast app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls and questions about your health care. The number to call is 1-877-MPB-RING, 1-877-672-7464. If you don't get to call in and you have a question or maybe it pops up during the week, you can always email us, email us at remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Ann in West Tennessee. Good morning, Ann. Good morning. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, sure. I have a quick question. It's about a product. Um, I had a little bout with plantar fasciitis um, within the last year, and when I rubbed it on my foot, it really seemed to help a lot to to relieve the the pain. And um, and also, if uh, we're, we're we're Medicare age, so also my husband and I, if we we get any kind of bump or bruised or something, sometimes that, you know, an ache, that seems to help a little bit, just a small amount. But it's called, um, it's a Greenford Hemp Cream, and um, it's it seems to be all natural. It's inflammation formulation because it has, like, hemp oil, aloe vera, emu oil, all these kind of things. But my husband was saying, well, I wonder if there's any negative um, components to using something like this. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Anne, uh, so I would say just by the ingredients that you, I'm not, I'm not familiar with the actual product, but with the ingredients, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of patients use those. Should be okay. Now, the one caveat with that would be you can always have a hypersensitivity to that. So some people, you know, <clears throat> they can put it on their skin no matter where it's on, and they can have an allergic reaction to it. And usually that's some redness or itching at the site. But there's no real way to predict that. You know, you just have to try it. Uh, most creams, I tell people, particularly if they're over-the-counter, don't slather on half the bottle right off the bat. Just use a small amount, pea-sized amount, and put it sort of as a test patch. The back of your hand works well to do that because it's a thinner area of the skin. And if you are going to have a reaction, you can see that. So do that for a day or two. And then after you do that, if it's okay, uh, you can try it. If it's working for plantar fasciitis, look, I've had it. I've got plenty of patients have had it. Uh, use it. And if it's, you know, if it's helping you, that's great. Um, or for other little aches and pains. Uh, you know, the other things that work for plantar fasciitis, sometimes healing starts would work or orthotics, uh, certainly physical therapy. Uh, weight loss, if you can do it, can certainly help. And stretching out that plantar fascia, particularly uh, early in the morning, can do that. So if that's working for you, I would say stick with it. 
Um, not a whole lot of data on some of these products, but yet again, sure. you know, my, my personal philosophy is if it's not going to harm you and it's healthy, then that's okay. Oh, good. And and I agree with you. We just tried a little bit at first because you never know. I wish I'd known that when eating uh, several mangoes from my grandmother's tree um, in oh. South Florida years ago because they did not like me as much as I did them, and they, yeah. they showed it. <laughs> yeah, so those were so much. I've, I have a friend of mine, and we were on a mission trip in, in uh, Honduras one year, and uh, they ate some and just had a horrendous breakout around their mouth, so... They taste good, but uh, you can't uh, you can't really uh, <laughs> can't really uh, predict that a lot of times. So, well, the, uh, this was before my first prom too, and and it was all around my face, and we we used makeup, but you know how you just know you just feel horrible. But um, thank you so much for your show and everything you do, and your demeanor is just wonderful. It's a oh, thank you. Remote bedside, so oh. you, you take good care. <laughs> thank you, Ann, and uh, thank you for those comments. Let's go to, we're going to try to squeeze in Brian, uh, and I've got about three minutes here, I think, Brian uh, from Jackson. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call today. How you doing? Sure. Good. That's good. Uh, well, I just have a quick question. Uh, I'm uh, 31 years old. Uh, I'm an African-American male, and... Uh, my family has uh, a history of, uh, of illnesses, uh, specifically cancer, and my father had, uh, had to have a heart transplant back in 2003 uh, due to heart failure. Uh, my question is, is that um, although I feel healthy, um, I don't feel ill or anything like that, I'm very active, um, should I be seeking um, any diagnosis or anything like that or trying to do any preventative health checks or anything like that? And if so, where should I start? Sure. Um, so it does depend upon, um, you know, what types of illnesses or what types of cancers that, uh, that your family has. Now, some cancers in first or second degree relatives, even in your thirties, it may make, uh, your screening for those a little bit different than the general population. For instance, if you had a first or second degree relative who had, uh, colon cancer, at whatever age they developed it, about 10 years prior to that is when they would recommend that you receive your um, your screenings, which would be a colonoscopy. Um, there are some other conditions, um, particularly some of the myopathies. That's a uh, inheritable or acquired diseases of muscles, which can also include uh, the heart. It's not the major cause of heart failure, but it is... Um, um, you know, it is one of the causes, uh, a rare cause. Uh, they probably investigated that when they did the heart transplant on your dad. Uh, so I would just ask them if there was a reason like hypertension or diabetes or a combination of things that led them to get heart uh, failure to develop it, that's a little bit different. But eating right, uh, certainly regular exercise and seeing your physician uh, once a year for just your routine checkups that's probably going to be your best bet, Brian, in trying to ward off some of these things. We can't always escape uh, escape genetics, but we can certainly modulate what we do to try to prevent a lot of those things. So that would be my recommendation to you, Brian, and uh, keep active and uh, eat healthy.
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. 